From the heart of our nation's capital, here's Family Research Council President Tony Perkins. Welcome to Washington Watch, and my name is Joseph Backholm, sitting in for Tony today. So glad that you have joined us on this Friday as we head into Mother's Day weekend, and I certainly hope that you have plans to celebrate and love all of the mothers in your life couple reminders for you before we get into the program. You can find Tony at Tony underscore Perkins on Gab. You can find the show, of course, at TonyPerkins.com. Every episode of Washington Watch, you can find there. Encourage you to do so. You can also find the Stand Firm app at the App Store as well as on Google Play. Download that and you can get all your Family Research Council resources sent directly to your phone and quickly. Uh, Great lineup for you today. Stay with us. Um, We're going to talk about birthing people in honor of Mother's Day. Where did that come from? Why is that such a thing so quickly? Um, We're also going to talk about whether segregating, segregated seating in church is going to become a thing based on vaccines that's now being suggested in Washington state. We're going to talk to a pastor there about how those churches are going to respond. We're also going to talk to the sponsor of a pre-born non-discrimination act in North Carolina that just passed the house. Great news as it moves there. We will talk to the sponsor. End of the program. We are going to think biblically about communication. How should Christians think about the way we talk to each other, online and otherwise? We will do that with David Clausen. But now, to get into the program, the headline yesterday, the House Committee on Oversight and Reform hosted a hearing on birthing while black, examining America's black maternal health crisis. And while President Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris have both recently said that America is not a racist nation, the claim at the hearing was that America's historical and ongoing structural racism against black people is a root cause of the nation's black maternal mortality crisis. So what came out at the hearing? With me now to talk about this and more is Mary Zock, director of the Center for Human Dignity at Family Research Council. Mary, welcome back to the program. Thanks so much for having me, Joseph. Well, uh, unfortunately, on a, in a hearing where it, the intention was to talk about a real problem, kind of the headline was... Um, was Congresswoman Bush's use of the phrase birthing people. Now, Mary, you are uh, about to have a a child of your own. Uh, You are, uh, as the kids say these days, a birthing person, what we used to refer to as a woman. What's your reaction to that phrase? Well, I think it just shows in a lot of ways the lack of seriousness with which we're taking this this issue of maternal mortality, especially among the African-American community, where we do have a real maternal mortality crisis. America in general has a maternal mortality crisis. But throughout the hearing, it wasn't just Congresswoman Bush. Throughout the hearing, moms were referred to as birthing people. The word maternal comes from the Latin word mater, meaning mother. You know, and we're we're rejecting science. So we probably shouldn't use that word either. No, no, definitely not. So what's your reaction as a woman to the idea that it's more inclusive to use the term birthing people? It's just unscientific, right? It just it's nonsense. We can't say that there are birthing people because only women 
can give birth. Well, of course, you and I would agree on that. That is oddly now something, a, a point of contention where we are, we are suggesting that uh, people of all and every sex can have babies if they want to. And it is, it's, um, you know, of course, it, it just goes to the underlying truth claims. And I think this is related to the pronoun wars as well, right? Because this is, this is redefining the English language and frankly, every other language around this trans claim that identity that are the, the way we feel supersedes um, reality, kind of the, the way we're born, what our anatomy says about us. But I think it's really significant in the language, and I, and I make this, I, I feel this way about pronouns because it's really, when you say you must refer to a man as a woman, use a she pronoun, you are requiring someone to use language that is so loaded with meaning. Because when, when you refer to a man as a she, you're basically saying that person is in control of themselves, that person gets to determine their own reality, and that person can be female if they want it to be. That's a, that's a fundamentally religious claim, isn't it? It is. And, and a frightening thing is that we're requiring people to lie. And this, yes. this is a big push of the left. We lie about... The, the reality of an unborn child yeah. in the womb. We lie about the reality of sex. We lie about all sorts of yeah. things because we re- the, the left rejects God, and so yeah. re- they reject truth. And, and to me, the, the, whether it's the birthing, pre, birthing people phrase or the idea that you have to use preferred pronouns, um, as the kids also say these days, to me that's not really that different than requiring someone to say Jesus is Lord. Now, I might think that's actually true, and I might like it if you say that. It might make me feel better, but I would strongly object to the idea that government's going to force you to say that. And really using, quote unquote, preferred pronouns philosophically isn't that different because it's a statement of faith about the nature of reality. And in a free society, we're not supposed to do that, are we? No, force people to make those claims. Certainly not. We are we are compelling speech. And and in this case, the case of the maternal mortality crisis hearing, we're we're compelling speech that detracts from the actual issue. We're detracting from the fact that across this country, we actually have a crisis of black women not receiving the type of maternal health care that they should. Yeah, but it's also interesting that in the same at, at the same moment where you're using language that denies the existence of objective truth, you are making the claim that it is objectively wrong, it is objectively bad, that black babies are dying as infants at a higher rate than other, other babies. So there's this in, internal kind of conflict of we're going to, on one hand, uh, tear down the structure that recognizes this is a problem and would, would fix it, but we're also going to, you know, try to say this is a problem and we want to fix this. Absolutely. And we saw that in Congresswoman Bush's testimony. And I, I don't know if you saw the testimony, but it was powerful. She described giving birth to her two children. And she, she described her, her son, the, the experience with her son, who was born prematurely at 23 weeks. She talked about how at 23 weeks, his little ears were still inside his head. His eyes were still sealed shut. His fingers, she said, were as small as rice. She described beautifully the humanity right. of that child. And then she went on to talk about her daughter, who was who who she went into labor with preterm at 16 weeks. She talked about how the doctors told her, go home and let your baby die. And she fought for that child's life. 
this should make Congresswoman Bush one of the top advocates for the unborn. She should be the sponsor on every pro-life bill. And I hope she will join us in that effort. But then at the end of her testimony, she starts to deny truth, right, with this comment about birthing parents. And, And that denial shows this inability to reckon with one of the major causes of the maternal mortality crisis in America, which is our permissive abortion laws. Yeah, and, and tell us tell us more about that because this the this hearing was exploring the fact that and, and it, it's true. I have some of the data here, and in the the states with the highest infant mortality rates in the country are Louisiana, Mississippi. Alabama, and then somehow North Dakota squeaked in there as well. And I don't, those things are not obviously similar to me, but the places where they are the highest are these three Southern predominant, large, the the largest African-American populations in America, Louisiana, Mississippi, and Alabama. And they are trying to connect this to racism, which is part of the problem. Systemic racism is everything seems to be attributed to these days. What do you think is going on there? What's the solution? Well, certainly, I think I'd like to look at D.C. because it's it's smaller and, mm-hmm. and we can really look at what's going on here. Well, D.C. is an African-American majority city and, and Ward 7 and 8 are primarily African-American neighborhoods. And in those wards, we don't have a single OB unit that is mm-hmm. serving that population. Those women have to travel to go to get obstet- ob- to get OB care. D.C. also has one of the most permissive abortion laws in the country. And and that seems to me to be a problem. Why are we creating greater access to abortion for these women than we have access to actual childbirth? That seems to me to be a race issue, especially when we know that Planned Parenthood opens their clinic. Seventy nine percent of their surgical abortion units are within walking distance of minority neighborhoods. And we know that the African-American abortion rate is three times as high as the rate for white women. We also know that the maternal mortality rate shows a three times increase. But our medical community and our culture, our society, our government has denied the fact that abortion could even play a part in the maternal mortality crisis. We won't even look at it. We don't want to look at it because, sadly, there are things that we, we really don't want to know, aren't there? Exactly. We, we don't want to see the truth. And we don't want to see, well, Margaret Sanger, who founded Planned Parenthood, she was a yeah. eugenist. And, the, and Planned Parenthood is continuing her mission today. Now, I want to change um, subjects here briefly, kind of, because I, we're, we're still talking about in, in, in the spirit of Mother's Day and, and mothering. A couple headlines this week. The declining birth rate in the United States. We've reached a record low. Is this, uh, is this related to the pandemic? Is this because people don't want to have babies during Corona? What do you think was happening there? I think there's a lot of factors that could explain the declining birth rate. But if we look at the situation that, that was created under COVID, we told people, be afraid of each other. Mm-hmm. Be afraid of yourself. Don't go to church. Mm-hmm. Don't invite God into your life and, and try to have as much control as you possibly can. We said, don't take any risks. I can't think of a greater risk than getting married, loving someone unconditionally and having a child. Yeah, well, children are risky. I mean, there's no doubt about that. And, and we are becoming increasingly risk averse. But I mean, this this in 
this is a long-term problem if we stop having babies, isn't it? It certainly is. And we're seeing, you know, the the predictions about what could happen to the economy. And, and we've seen this especially in countries like China, right. who have gone to great extents to try to control their population, to try right. to be in charge of what's happening there. Yeah. And you co-authored a piece this week. Uh, the title was Population Isn't All That China Loses With Its One-Child Policy. What did you mean there? What, what, what's at stake for China? China is seeing the tragic effects of their one-child policy. They tried to expand it to a two-child policy. Well, it didn't work. Their population is still in decline. But furthermore, we've seen human trafficking on the rise because there's a lack of baby girls there. We've seen suicide on the rise, especially in the elderly rural populations who are lonely, who, who are experiencing a, a growing old without anyone to care for them. You know, this is it's a huge problem all across the board, not to mention the fact that they have destroyed the lives of over 400 million babies through this. Yeah, and and that is tragic. And and when we when we look generationally at our decisions, you know, sometimes it takes more than a couple weeks to discover the consequences of the decisions we made. And China is experiencing that now. And what we see here domestically is that we risk being where China is 30, 40, 50 years from now if we don't change our value system that values kids and says we want to bring them into the world and that's what mothers do and that's why we celebrate them in the way we do. Mary Zock, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Coming up, will churches soon be convinced to add vaccinated sections to their services in order to increase capacity? We'll talk about that right after the break. What is Roe v. Wade and what did it do? The Supreme Court's 1973 decision ruled that abortion is protected under the U.S. Constitution, striking down many state abortion restrictions and severely limiting the extent to which states could write their own abortion laws. The Supreme Court's limitations on states to legislate abortion restrictions depends on the trimester of a pregnancy. For instance, Roe disallows states from restricting abortions in the first trimester, but allows some restrictions on abortions in the third trimester. What Roe doesn't do is require states to have any restrictions. Abortion through all nine months of pregnancy is the default, unless Congress or the individual states pass laws restricting it. That leaves a lot of room for unrestricted abortions. For a full explanation of how Roe v. Wade liberalized abortion laws, go to frc.org explainer. That's frc.org explainer. After the recent wave of media censorship, are you struggling to find a conservative, relevant, and Christian platform where you can find out what's really going on? Here at Family Research Council, we believe that Americans have a right to exercise their freedom of speech and share their stories with the world. If you're ready to hear the facts that the left doesn't want you to know about, then head over to frcblog.com to check out our latest blog posts. We cover a wide range of issues you and your family care about, all written by our policy, government affairs, and biblical worldview experts. We discuss topics that other media platforms won't, like changes in pro-life policy, current events that affect Christians internationally, sexuality from a biblical perspective, and insights into the bigger picture of the shift in American culture. To stay up to date on current news related to faith, family, and freedom, visit frcblog.com. That's frcblog.com. Would you like to spend more time in God's Word? 
Then join Family Research Council on an exciting journey through the Bible with their Stand on the Word Bible Reading Plan. FRC's two-year Bible reading plan helps you to approach daily Bible reading with an intentional focus of diving deeper into the nature of God and how His Word speaks into cultural issues. By studying the Bible, we can see the grandeur of God unfold throughout the past. This reading plan takes you through the Bible as events happen in history. Laying out the scripture every day in an engaging manner, it is key to helping us stay grounded in God's truth. All wisdom comes from God, and He has given us the Bible as a way to understand the world. Start reading today with Family Research Council. When you sign up, we text you every Sunday with daily passages and questions that help prepare you for conversations with your friends and family. To begin this journey, visit frc.org Bible. Welcome back to Washington Watch. My name is Joseph Backholm, sitting in for Tony today. So glad that you have joined us. Across the nation, vaccinated sections are being added to sports venues. That is, designated sections where spectators can be seated without physical distancing requirements if they have proof that they have been fully vaccinated. And that idea is being used by some government leaders to offer churches an incentive to encourage their congregations to get vaccinated. In the state of Washington, where new guidelines were recently released that encourage religious and faith-based organizations to add vaccinated-only sections so that they can increase their overall capacity to 50%. We're going to listen to Jay Inslee, who's the governor of Washington, what he had to say about this just a couple days ago. On the incentive issue, we do encourage incentives for vaccinations. And there are, as I indicated last week, there will be an increasing number of incentives that will be available to people to be vaccinated. Uh, You'll be able to go to a Mariners game and and sit close to people in a vaccinated portion of the stands. Uh, You'll be able to have increased uh, participation in your faith organization sitting in a sort of a vaccination sector. And importantly, you'll be able to go to school and colleges. Will this work? With me now to talk about it is Alec Rollins, senior pastor at Westgate Chapel in beautiful Edmonds, Washington, also the founder and president of Church Awakening. Alec, welcome to Washington Watch. Thank you, Joseph. Sure is good to see you again. We miss you in the state of Washington. Well, thank you. It is great to see you again, and and I am always looking forward to my uh, returns home. Thank you so much. Now, when you heard, what was your reaction when you heard this new guidance from Governor Inslee uh, about churches needing to create vaccinated sections in their churches? To be honest with you, heading down to the office yesterday, Tony, I, I, I thought about, you know, if we had an outbreak of measles or we had an outbreak of, uh, of some other disease in the congregation, we would work hard to... Uh, to segregate those who were sick. We would get the word out to everybody. We would do everything we could to uh, minimize the, the damage to other people. But we would, we would prefer, I guess, to do this uh, on our own and at, and at our own pace rather than having it dictated from Olympia. So it's a frustration to us all the way back to when our churches were closed 
back in the spring. Now, he's not saying that you must do this. He's saying you must do this if you want to have your 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 sanctuary at 50 percent capacity. Is that correct? Am I understanding that? Yeah. Yes, that's correct. Much like a few months ago, he said you could only have one worship leader on the platform at a time and that they want one accompanist and they must sing through a mask and the congregation may not sing, at which point we had to face uh, really a biblical decision about whether we were going to comply or not. And I think in this instance, Joseph, our our sense of things is that um, we, we are not going to let the sanctuary become a place where people, where the concentration and the focus of people is on the restrictions, but rather on worship and the Word of God. That must be our focus. So we're, we're not, not in an arrogant way, but we're not going to comply. Well, I, it, it's an amazing world in which elected officials, allegedly public servants, are trying to dictate to churches how many people can be on their stage and what they must have over their face while yes. they are singing yeah. uh, to Jesus and leading others to do so. Uh, it, it's really kind of difficult to wrap my head, wrap my head around this. Are, I know that you're a part of a, 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 a network called Church Awakening. You're in relationship with a lot of other pastors. How's the church broadly in Washington State dealing with this? I would say it's a mixed bag. Uh, a lot of pastors uh, are feeling the pressure to comply. A lot of pastors' congregations have been significantly divided over masks or no mask, distance or no distance, mm -hmm. and what the pastor's position might be or not be on the subject. And so I, there's a lot of division out here, and a lot of churches— uh, have not reopened, and what I'm hearing is pastors are are resigning at at an unusual rate, and churches literally closing uh, at an unusual rate, which is a, a terrible outcome, no doubt. When you see people, but we hear when you see people quitting their jobs, but you hear that story a lot. It seems the discouragement, the frustration. Now. When it comes to the vaccine, we know that is also a, a divisive issue generally. Not everyone is going to get the vaccine because not everyone wants the vaccine. What do you think of this idea that there would be segregation, essentially, inside of a church or other organizations for those who have been vaccinated and those who haven't been vaccinated? How would that affect the community? It, 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 it makes me really nervous about how much coercion is right, is, is right around the corner um, so that's that's the issue that I have uh, right now. It sounds like he's saying the churches can have a voluntary section, um, but but it just just concerns me about how soon he's going to make that mandatory, uh, like everything else that we've had to face in the state of Washington. Now, Alec, I want to go a little more broadly with you now because the the New York Times published an article um, in the last week or so. It said white evangelical resistance is the obstacle in vaccination efforts. Now, it's true that there's a lot of the data is showing that white evangelicals are a segment of the population that are more reluctant to get the vaccine. What are you advising people? What are you telling people? What do you think? How should the church be responding to this vaccination question? I have stayed silent from the pulpit on this issue. Um, I'm trying to to focus my comments and commentary on those things that have a clear biblical 
uh, uh, foundation. So I've not said anything. My wife and I are very reticent to have to, to, to take the vaccine. I had COVID about a month ago, fortunately a fairly mild case and, um, and emerged just fine. So I'm not really a candidate for it right now, but we are very reluctant to take it. And I looked at the, at the New York Times article um, and, and really there's, I don't know how, how, how much you want me to comment on, uh, but just, yeah. you know, they're, they're saying white evangelicals have a mistrust of yeah. science. No, it's not a mistrust of science. Rita and I have been vaccinated for everything else. Alec, I'm going to um, have to cut you off there because we are at a hard break. Alec Rollins, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for all you're doing in Washington state. We look forward to having you back. Coming up, stay with us. We're going to go to North Carolina and talk about Prenda with the primary sponsor there right after the break. Where do you get your news? Do you have confidence you're getting the full truth? If you want to stay up to date on conservative news and are looking for Christian resources to help you stay politically engaged, then download Family Research Council's Stand Firm app. With all of our content available at your fingertips, you will conveniently be able to stay up to date throughout your busy day. The Stand Firm app will give you access to a variety of resources, such as our most recent radio programs, social media posts, and publications. Additionally, you will have the opportunity to take action and make your voice heard by contacting your elected officials on the issues that most concern you. Visit the App Store on your smartphone or mobile device and search Stand Firm to download Family Research Council's official Stand Firm app. Stay informed with a trusted source. Again, search Stand Firm to download the Stand Firm app. As the political and cultural landscape of our nation has shifted in a concerning direction, it is so important for Christians to be equipped with biblical answers for the difficult questions of our time. That is why Family Research Council created our Biblical Worldview series. With the political left changing definitions to favor their narrative and to push their agenda, at times it can be hard to decipher what is true. That is why we must hold to the truth of the Bible, which stands the test of time. It holds the truth that does not change. Become equipped to stand firm in the face of cultural and political storms with FRC's Biblical Worldview series. This series dives deep into what the Bible says about some of the most crucial issues of our day. You'll learn what the Bible teaches on abortion, same-sex marriage, the separation of church and state, religious freedom, and the age-old question, should Christians be involved in politics? To access this series, visit frc.org slash worldview. That's frc.org slash worldview. Welcome back to Washington Watch. My name is Joseph Backholm. Sitting in for Tony today. He will be back in the chair next week, but it's my pleasure to be with you now. Yesterday, the North Carolina House of Representatives passed by a 67 to 42 vote a bill that would prevent physicians from performing abortions because of race or sex or because the fetus is suspected of having Down syndrome. The Human Life Non-Discrimination Act, it's HB 453, for those of you in North Carolina, is just the latest legislation of its type, and we've seen others around the nation. So far, 16 states have enacted some type of prenatal non-discrimination act, or PRENDA for short. 
Even better news is that more are in the pipeline. With me now to talk about the Prenda that they just passed in North Carolina is North Carolina Representative Pat McElraft, who is the House Deputy Majority Whip and also the sponsor of HB 453. And I am now hearing in my ear that she is not quite ready, so we are going to get her on the line. Meanwhile, we are going to talk about what these are, and now I've heard that she is with us. Representative McElraft, thank you so much for joining us on Washington Watch. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Well, please do tell us you are leading on this, and and we are so grateful for your leadership. What is it uh, that your bill does, and, and why did you decide to sponsor this? Oh, gosh. my uh, Our bill, there are four primary sponsors, and um, we decided to sponsor this bill because when we found out there were 70% of the children uh, who get a or the uh, women who get a positive on their prenatal testing for Down syndrome? Seventy uh, percent of those babies are are aborted, and I was just shocked at that. And um, I have a friend who had a baby two years ago uh, with Down syndrome, and I've watched this baby grow and the love and care that the baby has gotten. And got interested in Down syndrome that way. And then when I had an opportunity to uh, sponsor this bill, I just, I absolutely, yes. Well, I, I think you and I have probably had the same experience that way. When I see um, people, and, and sometimes babies, but people with Down syndrome, many of whom, I mean, the, the quality of their life, quite frankly, uh, seems to be better than average, it seems to me, just the joy and the love that they bring to the world. And and so are they physically what we describe as perfect? I guess not. But honestly, my assessment is that their life uh, seems to be better than a lot of other people's lives. And the idea that uh, because of a, a chromosomal abnormality that they would be deemed unworthy of life uh, should be problematic for all of us. But it your bill doesn't be. just deep. Yeah, your bill doesn't just deal with Down syndrome, does it? I think, does it also deal with race and gender as well? Yes, it does. We already had in our statutes the uh, sex selection, um, and that passed, I think, about six years ago. Um, that's, so that's been in the statute. And we just added race and a, a positive or presumptive pro- positive test for Down syndrome as another, um, another uh, way to stop discrimination uh, to prevent those abortions. Or actually, uh, ban those abortions. Ban those. Yes. What kind of response have you gotten, both from the public as well as from the legislature in North Carolina? Well, from the public, it is amazing. In fact, there was a, um, a couple of studies done in North Carolina that said, I think it was 67 to 80 percent on the two uh, the two polls, that they think that Down syndrome uh, children should not be aborted uh, just because they get a positive test. And, of course, we know that these first trimester um, non-invasive tests are only sometimes 50, 60, 70 percent accurate. Um, they do not. Uh, we get false positives, you know, 20 up to 50 percent of the time with these. Um, the mother's own DNA can interfere uh, with the chromosome 21 DNA. So um, we uh, uh, we know they're not accurate tests. And and so many have told me during this that their wife got a positive on that. They knew they were not going to abort. And there was nothing at all wrong with their baby. But when it comes to these children, 
they make you smile. Oh, my goodness. Um, we had testimony from adults who have Down syndrome that have been working. At, this one um, young uh, man, Will, had been working, has been working at Whole Foods for 18 years. And he laughed and he smiled and he he just had a great interview with us during during the time that we have done the, the three, we went through three different committees before we went to the floor. And um, it just it's amazing to see the happiness in these children. I think you're right. And I, I think for me, one of the most important points out of this legislation, and I think one of the things we want to drive home for the public is the idea that our value does not come from our current health state or even what we contribute. But all of us really are made in the image of God. Therefore, our lives are innately valuable, not because our life is convenient to somebody or else or, or, or even uh, helpful to somebody. And I am so am so appreciative of the fact that you are making that point clear and creating the platform and the opportunity for that to happen. Now, we've got about one minute left. Tell us, what do you expect in for this bill? Is it going to make it into law? Is it going to become law in North Carolina? Well, I'm very excited because we need three Democrats to cross over. We know the governor's going to veto it. It will, it will be passed on the Senate side, and uh, the governor will veto it is what we figure. Um, but we have Democrats to override the veto with us because they voted for the bill. So, I'm excited that um, it should become law. Okay. Representative Pat McElraft, I think we may have just lost your phone, but we are out of time anyway. Thank you so much for your leadership. Thank you so much for what you're doing and for being with us today on Washington Watch. Coming up. We are going to talk with David Clausen, the director of the Biblical Center for Biblical Worldview. We're going to talk about communication. How do we talk to each other uh, biblically in a way that honors Jesus and the other person after the break? Get a trusted perspective on the news of the day every day. Listen to Washington Watch with Tony Perkins to get honest and in-depth commentary on what's going on in our nation's capital and around the world. Join Family Research Council President Tony Perkins live every weekday by tuning into Washington Watch on the American Family Radio Network, Bot Radio, the KTLW Radio Network, and independent Christian radio stations across the country. Or listen to the show when it works for you by visiting TonyPerkins.com. Since the Supreme Court decided Roe v. Wade in 1973, over 60 million people are now missing from our country due to legalized abortion. Public opinion, our knowledge of law, and scientific advancements demonstrate that Roe should by no means be considered settled law. Roe is an abomination in our country's history, and it's time for the horrendous practice of legalized abortion to end. To learn more about the legal, historical, and cultural reasons to overturn Roe v. Wade, go to frc.org Roe. The Equality Act sounds like good legislation and something that ought to have bipartisan support, but it doesn't. Why? Because the Equality Act, paradoxically, would spur inequality. It is Trojan horse legislation that would hinder equality and would massively overhaul our federal civil rights framework. The stated purpose of the bill is to prohibit discrimination on the basis of sex, gender identity, and sexual orientation. The real effect of this bill would not be to eliminate discrimination, but to erase the freedom to hold a different opinion. The Equality Act would mandate government-imposed inequality by requiring acceptance of a particular ideology about sexual ethics, while leaving no room for legitimate public debate. Simply put, the Equality Act mandates an anti-life, anti-family, and anti-faith agenda throughout federal law, and would be a disaster for all Americans. 
To learn more about the inequality of the Equality Act, visit frc.org slash Equality Act. Since June of 2015, over 12,000 Christians have been killed in Nigeria. This violence has reached a point at which experts are warning of a progressive genocide specifically targeting Christians across Africa's largest and most economically powerful nation. Yet this violence often goes unreported in the media, and if reported, is seriously downplayed. To learn more about what is actually taking place in Nigeria, along with other countries where Christians face persecution, visit frc.org Nigeria. Did you know that Planned Parenthood is the biggest abortion supplier in the U.S.? According to Planned Parenthood's most recent annual report, it committed 354,871 abortions in fiscal year 2019, up by over 9,000 abortions since 2018. According to these numbers, Planned Parenthood aborted 972 babies every single day. To learn more about what Planned Parenthood is really doing, visit frc.org slash Planned Parenthood Facts. Welcome back to Washington Watch. My name is Joseph Backholm, sitting here for Tony today. Every Wednesday on the Family Research Council blog, we have a Worldview Wednesday segment where we take a topic that is culturally relevant and we try to help you think about it biblically as we try to help ourselves think about it biblically as well. And this week, we picked communication and speech. And we're going to break this down and we're going to do so with David Clausen, who is the director of the Center for Biblical Worldview at Family Research Council. David? Welcome in. Hey, it's Glad great. to have you. Hey, it's great to be back again with you, Joseph. Well, this is a good topic, and, and this came up because our social media director basically was monitoring the Family Research Council Facebook page and said, you know, I think all these people think they're Christians, and they all think that they're basically arguing on behalf of Jesus, but they don't seem to be talking to each other very nicely, and... Uh, her experience, her observation was certainly not uh, unique to her. Uh, you and I spend some time on social media. Yep. You've seen it. I've seen it. Why do you think people, Christians in this case, because that's what we're going to focus on, why do Christians speak so harshly to each other online and otherwise? Yeah, o- online or otherwise. And, and First of all, I'm not going to doubt the sincerity of some of these people who, who say they love Jesus. Many of them probably do. Right. We're not questioning their salvation. N- n- not right. at all. <laughs> but I think what's interesting, Joseph, is those of us who kind of work in the idea in the world of ideas, mm-hmm. we realize that ideas have consequences. These things that we advocate here for in Washington, D.C. at the Family Research Council, life and religious freedom and marriage and sexuality, th- these are big, weighty issues that matter. And so I think when we're, we're debating these issues and talking to people about them, we're trying to persuade yeah. our friends and neighbors, we can get really excited. We can right. get really animated. And at times, when you get really excited yeah. about something, I think they're, even as Christians, even those who are walking yeah. with the Lord and the Holy Spirit, can cross a line. Yeah. Uh, in your blog, you talked about yeah. the rules of engagement. Yeah. We can cross that line into being in, on the you know. Coming at it from a spirit that's yeah. submitted to the Lord to where we're operating out of the flesh. Right. And, and, and I'll say this as a parent, and I've seen many parents do this, is sometimes it's, it's fear. And I, I think the points that you make there about ideas have consequences. These things matter. That's why we care. And, and I think about the, you know, sometimes you have a mother of a small child who's about to run into the road. Right. The kid is ignorant. 
putting himself in danger, doesn't realize what's happening, but mom knows exactly what's happening, and she actually behaves in a way that looks like anger at the kid. Why are you doing that? And and really, it's because she's afraid, right? She's afraid something's going to happen to her child, and so that emotion gets the best of her, and she, I mean, is legitimately angry. I think you can describe it that way. So it's, is it wrong to really care about something? No, not, not at all. I think we, we should care about things. We should care yeah. about our family. We should care about these issues. We should care about our faith. Uh, so I think that that passion that is underneath some of uh, our online and in-person communication, it's, it's right. good. But it's also important how we direct that. It's important how we convey that. It's important, as you pointed out in your blog, how we see the people that we're communicating with, whether they're on the right side of the issue or not. Because ultimately, every time we have a conversation, online or in person, we're talking with someone who's made in God's image that has inherent value and dignity and deserves respect. And that has to come out in our communication. Now, sometimes we're talking to people and... And I've been in this situation where I feel like I'm actually under control, but they're really bothered by what I'm saying. Does that mean I'm doing it wrong? Not necessarily. I think about the life and ministry of Jesus. Uh, you know, he, he had some strong words, and he called people out. He called the religious leaders out, called them a brood of vipers, right. you whitewashed tombs. Uh, I think those were insults, right, for their day? They, they, they were for, those, for their day, first century <laughs> insults, absolutely. But I think – and so – it's okay to have that, uh, to have maybe that behind what we're saying. But again, we have to make sure the posture of our heart. I think that's important with this whole thing with communication. Let's unpack that a little bit with Jesus referring people to referring to people as a brood of vipers. Yeah. Um, he he referred to some of the Pharisees. Of, he, he said, your father is the devil. So basically, you're the son of the devil, right? Because you only listen to your father, the devil, as he referred to them, which is, of course, not necessarily uplifting. What was he trying to communicate to them, do you think, when he said those strong words to them? Yeah, I think he was trying to communicate to the religious leaders and everyone else that was watching that conversation take place that these people were wrong. They were getting Jesus, his ministry, wrong. And that was the most important. They were getting the gospel wrong. And so, yeah, we should be loving. That's what I've been saying right now in our conversation. But the truth matters. Yeah. And we that's Ephesians 4. Paul talks about this truth and love. We can't compromise right. the truth aspect. And in those conversations Jesus was having, he didn't budge one inch when it came to truth. And we can't either. And what we can expect, yeah. Jesus told us, we can expect that opposition, Joseph, because when we're with Jesus, when we're standing on the issues, and as long as we're we're right, you know, where he is with where the scripture leads us. Yeah. We should, can and should expect opposition. Do you think Jesus was being loving when he referred to the Pharisees as a brood of vipers? I actually think yes, because I don't think it would be loving to even those religious leaders that he had a relationship. We know he had a relationship with Nicodemus. I don't think it would have been loving had he let them uh, be misled and thinking they were on the right side of these issues. And so I, I think it actually was loving. It was tough love, you might yeah. say, but I think it was loving. Well, and, and I think that is um, that's a key in all of this uh, because. The temptation, and I think a lot of people in the church, in an attempt to de-escalate and to not create conflict and to be liked, to be likable, and in in some cases, there's nothing wrong with with gentleness, right? I mean, that is a fruit of the Spirit, and, and we should pursue that. 
But I think when we talk about the fact that Jesus used very direct, very clear language that you could even describe as harsh, um, that we might look at that and say, see, that gives me the right to just say whatever I want to say about somebody, right? Because that's a justification. Jesus said harsh things, therefore I can say harsh things. I think the difference between what Jesus was doing always, because he was perfect, and what we do sometimes because we're not perfect, is our motive is not, is not the best interest of them. We're not, we're not seeking their best. We're, we're trying to win. They annoy us. They bother us. Yeah. You know, we hate what they represent, whatever that is. So I'm going to take Jesus's directness. I'm going to channel it in a carnal way and use it as a weapon against them rather than as a, as a sincere desire to try to help them. Because we should assume, we must assume that Jesus was actually trying to reveal something to them yeah. for their benefit, not just because he wanted to win, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. And that's why I've already quoted it. But I think this was probably what was happening in the church at Ephesus when, when Paul was talking about, the, you know, writing to the believers there. I'm sure they had strong opinions and they were taking a stand for the truth. They were taking a, in, in a, a culture where there was idol worship and all yeah. sorts of rampant sin. Uh, I'm sure those people were taking a, a stand for truth. And yet Paul still said, that's a good thing you're taking a stand for truth but you have to speak the truth in love and so again yeah jesus we know his motive was pure it was for the the good of others unfortunately you and i are fallen and that's where i think we really do when we're in these conversations i would just encourage everyone If you're, especially if sometimes you, you don't know you're about to be in a confrontational situation, sometimes you can anticipate it. And when you do that, I think it's wise to just even maybe pray right before that conversation yeah. and say, Lord, I submit, I surrender this conversation to you. Help me to be led by the Spirit. Help me to honor you in this conversation. Yeah. And, and I think a test that we can have, just to get really practical, is if we are not thinking lovingly about the person that we're going to talk to, maybe we should just spend a little more time in prayer, read our Bible and get our heart right. Because if we go into the conversation in anger and, and really upset with that person, it's going to be pretty hard to deliver truth in love, isn't it? We're just more likely to deliver truth in, you know, in a different way. No, I agree with you. And, that, and it, that, this speaks to a theme of Scripture, Joseph, that we're getting at here, is that the, the power of the tongue. You know, right. there's that adage, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. We know that's just patently false. That's not yeah. true. And it's really yeah. interesting. You, you read uh, the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, how much the writers of Scripture talk about the power of our tongue, uh, the yeah. power of our speech, the power of communication. Um, and, and James talks about this. Paul talks about this. That, that there's power in our, our tongues. And as those who've been set apart, we're called ambassadors of Jesus Christ, we, we have to realize that we are called to a higher standard when it comes mm-hmm. to the way we engage with people, specifically with the speech that we use. Right. Solomon says in Proverbs that life and death are in the power of the tongue. Now, he says a lot of things about the tongue, and maybe you can get into some of the other ones. But let's, let's talk about what that means, that life and death are in the power of the tongue. Mm-hmm. How is life in the power of the tongue? Yeah. It's a good question. I think what what Solomon's getting at in his wisdom as far as life and the power of tongue, we have, with our words, Joseph, we we have power to to tear people up, to to build them up, to edify them, or to tear them down. 
Uh, scripture speaks that you know, a timely word, just just a timely word, uh, can turn away wrath. A timely word can uh, build someone up. And again, it's just interesting. We're, we're made in God's image. Uh, God is a God who communicates, just like God. We have that ability to communicate. And it, I think what Solomon's getting at is that, that there's just there's there's great power. In, in our words, for yeah. good or for ill. And that's a, a stewardship. Yeah. That's a responsibility that we have. I think seeing that as a stewardship is the right way to view that. Uh, and I think every single human that's been around for a few years and been along, around long enough to be you know, sentient can point to moments in their life where somebody spoke life into them and it it was uplifting and it was encouraging. It was motivating, those things. Somebody said something to them that was encouraging and they felt like a better person. They wanted to be a better person. Mm-hmm. They believed in themselves and their own capacity. They were willing to take risks yeah. that they otherwise wouldn't have been willing to take because somebody took the time, maybe purposefully or maybe it was just accidentally, to speak life into them, right? Mm-hmm. So we all have that experience of like, yeah. Thank you so much for saying that, which is why we do need to love people with our tongues. We need to go out of our way to use words and and pick people up because we can. At the same time, the other side of that, we probably all have memories. Virtually every adult, I suspect, can go back to some point in their life and remember something that was said to them earlier in their life that they're still dealing with, right? Because we have identity issues that come from sixth grade because somebody in the desk next to us said something about us and we carry that self-consciousness with us. So that that's a form of death that we can deliver to people. So this, I mean, there's the component of this that is we just want to be obedient and follow the example of, of Jesus, which is enough. But very practically, we do carry tremendous power to elevate people's lives or to crush them, don't yeah. we? And just maybe if there's a parent or even a coach out there listening, I'll never forget. I was in sixth yeah. grade. I was a high school tennis or a middle school tennis player yeah. at a tennis camp. I was really down on myself. I wasn't the best out there. I was one of the hardest working. I remember the, the coach wanted to inspire me, and one of the drills he did is he hit a little drop shot over the net, yeah. and no one could get it. And he just looked at me and said, I believe in you. You yeah. can get this shot. Yeah. Uh, when he said yeah. that, I was so fired up, yeah. Joseph. Yeah. I remember as soon as the ball left his racket, yeah. I dove on the ground yeah. and got it over. Yeah. Once I got over, he yeah. came over, grabbed me by the face yeah. and said, don't let anyone ever yeah. tell you you can't do someone. Yeah. And I don't even know if he was a believer. And yet that just yeah. filled me with hope right. that I, I could do this. Right. And <clears throat> so any parent, any coach out there, just realize, you know, th- there's weight in our words. People right. are listening to us. That's exactly right. And so, <laughs> and, and this has nothing to do with Facebook, right, necessarily, though yeah. you can even be uplifting on social media if you choose to be. But. The, the, larger, the, the larger point here for me is understanding that the things we say to people, even the things we say to people anonymously from the, you know, we think it's anonymously from behind a keyboard to people that we're probably never going to ever be in the same room as. Yep. We still have power and we can encourage, we can uplift, or we can ruin them. And, and it, we've all, you know, most people who have been the subjects of insults online, online and otherwise ha- have probably experienced that. But Another point that I want to talk about is when we are speaking harshly, mm. to me, one of the things when, when, we, when we choose to insult, to criticize, to shame, whatever it is that we're doing, 
in the context of political conversations, con- yeah. cultural conversations. I think it has something to do with the fact we, we, it's an identity issue for how mm-hmm. we identify the people around us that we are very quick to label them as, oh, that's a leftist, that's a progressive, that's a conservative, that's a Christian, or that's a heretic, or, you know, we, we place some kind of materialistic or temporary label on them, and because of that, we label them quickly as adversaries or opponents or allies or whatever that is, and so we start to treat them that way. Yeah. What's a better way that we should start seeing people? Yeah, I think you pointed out towards the end of your Worldview Wednesday blog, Joseph, uh, in the Christian worldview, we have this category that I referred to earlier, that you and I are made in the image of God, right. and theologians debate exactly what that means, but it, at some level it means you and I resemble God more uniquely, more distinctly than anything else in all creation. Right. And so if, even in that fierce debate, online or in person, if even if they disagree with us on mm-hmm. every issue, that person still reflects God. They're still an object of his uh, value, and they still bear yeah. dignity. And if we think about people that way, even our opponents, yeah. that should change the way we see it, and hopefully that will yeah. season the conversation as well. Yeah, because... Even people who are wrong, and let's admit it, sometimes we're the one who is wrong, right? So we want to extend grace because sometimes we need to, we would, we are the recipients of grace. But if we choose consciously, and I think this is a discipline to see everybody, whether we agree with them on everything or we agree with them on nothing, to recognize that they are first not defined by their political positions or their persuasions, whatever those things are, they are primarily defined by the fact that they were made in the image of God, that God loves them, and because God loves them, we can love them too, right? Amen. Well said. David Clausen, thank you so much for your time. We look forward to doing it again next week. And for those of you who are at home on your way home, we thank you for joining us. I hope this has been helpful to you because we do need... um, we do need to be gentler. We need to speak to each other well. We need to speak life, not just because, not only because that's what Jesus wants us to do, but because that's how we make the world a better place. We'll Washington see you Watch time. with Tony Perkins is brought to you by Family Research Council and is entirely listener supported. Portions of the show discussing candidates are brought to you by Family Research Council Action. For more information on anything you've heard today or to find out how you can partner with us in our ongoing efforts to promote faith, family, and freedom, visit TonyPerkins.com. Also, to leave a comment about Washington Watch, call our watch line at 1-866-372-7234. That's 1-866-372-7234.